You are alive. In a cursed world, you're exposed. Exposed to heat, cold, gravity, disasters, evil, and thorns. In order to go forward, you have to battle the elements, including yourself. So you get hurt, and you bleed, and it hurts. Sometimes you retreat out of pain and your world shrinks to the size of the wound. And for a moment, your pain becomes your life. Why does it hurt so much? It hurts because it's wrong. Pain is information, we conclude. But God has designed a healing mechanism for wounds. Pain will cease, open wounds will close, and a scar will replace both the pain and the wound. It'll bleed, it'll hurt, but certainly it'll pass. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you in the house today. We're so thankful to be in the Lord's house. Great worship this morning. Got to meet some new folks today. I'm excited about that. And uh, just a good day to be in church. If you're not doing anything on Wednesday nights throughout the summer, we do something that we started last year that we had a really good time with called Sizzling Summer Nights. And this Sunday night, I'm going to be speaking right in this auditorium for just a few minutes on seven steps for a summer of spiritual success. And then as soon as we get done in here all together, uh, we're gonna have our third annual corn boil. Somebody give me a hand on some corn boil. Ma'am, it's Wednesday night. Oh my goodness gracious. I think Tammy's related to my sister, because I mean my wife, because she's very good at correcting me like my wife is, but you're right. But you're right, yeah, you're right. Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, 6.30, uh, please be here if you're able to be that. We're going to talk on seven steps for a summer of spiritual success. We're starting a little uh, summer thing on Wednesday night called Ed Talks. Uh, and that sounds a little self-serving, but you'll enjoy those. It's not really meant to be about me, I promise you. But I uh, had a great weekend last weekend in New England. It was kind of funny. Um, it, uh, we were in a place called, uh, in the mountains, and it was 38 degrees at night last weekend, and it felt so good. But I came back to some awesome Texas heat, and boy, just had a good time sitting out back this week. We rolled a TV out back, Major League Baseball package, been watching the Phillies at house at my night this week, uh, at my house this week, and you say, what are the Phillies? I have issues, I'll tell you about it after church, I'm sorry. Hey, I wanna invite your attention if you have a Bible with you. If not, we do have the verses up on the screen to Judges chapter six, and I want to talk today. We're in this series called Beautiful Scars. Man had a great response. I have another good testimony uh, coming up in the next couple weeks that we're excited about uh, to share with you for one of our young people. But uh, my talk today is called The Wound and Healing from Words. My mom gave me some great advice uh, when my kids started having kids. We had our grandchildren. And she said, when you're holding your little grandbabies, you put them up right next, you put their head right next to your head and just talk loving to them. Tell them you love them, tell them how beautiful they are, tell them how much you love being with them, and just, even though they don't understand anything you're saying, right, but just speak truth and God loves you, and, 
and, and you've got some great stuff you're going to do in your life, and Pop's going to be there uh, to watch you with that, and just speak and speak and speak and speak positively in their lives. And, and, and I really did that, and, I, I, and to be honest with you, I think it's kind of created a pretty strong bond uh, with me and my grands, and, and, and I really uh, am, am kind of enjoying this time of our life right now. Because the truth of the matter is words are very, very powerful. You can probably remember times in your life when you've been injured, broken arm, broke a leg. I remember when I was in elementary school, I had a compound break in my arm that was pretty bad. I broke both my ankles uh, playing basketball, believe it or not, 30 years and whatever ago. But, um, you know, I can remember some physical thing. Even when I, a few years ago, um, it'll be four years ago this September, I had a heart attack. And uh, God's really helped me to uh, build my health back up and, and have some great help with that, with some good friends and people that I'm close to. But I don't remember actually, to be very honest with you, the physical pain that came with those things. But you know what I can remember? I can remember a teacher that looked me in the face and said, you are a loser and you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail someday. Now, he may have had some pretty good reasons to say that, okay? I mean, I wasn't, you know, a straight-A student and, and Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky, super positive all the time. I was probably a punk a little bit. I understand that. But I'm going to tell you something. There are some words that all of you can remember that carry a little bit of hurt in your life, aren't there? Just things that were a little bit negative, things that, 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 that made you feel a little less than maybe than, than, than you were, um, the words we speak into people's lives, especially the next generation, are very powerful. I, I, I think there's, there's a phrase that I think is very interesting called constructive criticism. Because it sounds like it's almost a misnomer. Because isn't construction meant to build? So I'm going to build you up with this criticism I have for you. You know, and we like to give constructive criticism. You're doing this wrong, but th there's, I know there's a way to correct. And I know there's a way to, to teach and admonish and all those different things. But I think we have to be very, very careful uh, to understand the power generationally that our words have in each other's lives. I want you to do something real quick. Don't stand up. But I want you to tell someone that's sitting next to you, I'm really glad I'm sitting next to you today, and I think you're awesome. Just tell them that. I'm really glad I'm sitting next to you today, and you're just awesome. You're awesome. You, just so say it again, you are awesome. Say that to somebody. You're awesome. Don't words have a positive impact on our lives when they're, when they're said the right way? I want to read this passage for you out of Judges chapter 6, and it is powerful, powerful passage about Gideon. You may know Gideon. He was a guy that led 300 people to defeat an army of like 10,000 plus and the process that he went through and kind of whittling down his army to the size of God. I don't want to talk about any of that stuff, even though it's significant and awesome. I want to kind of get into the part where he was called and God revealed to him that he was going to do some things through him. In Judges chapter 6, it says this in verse number 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I wrote this in my margin again. If you read through the book of Judges... Boy, I, you know, it's funny. We read through the book of Judges and we say, man, how can these people, God's people, God's chosen people who he called out of Egypt and, and did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, proving who he was, who he said he was. 
uh, demonstrating who he was to them. They, 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 were, they had a front seat at the power of God demonstrated throughout this whole nation and these people, but they just struggled with idolatry. They, just, they would believe in the gods that didn't even exist uh, from other surrounding nations. Other nations had a negative impact on them. They struggled with their faith. They struggled with believing. And it seems like the book of Judges is like this cycle where they go highs, highs, and lows, lows. You read about Samson and all the great stuff that he did, and then you read about his lows. You read about Deborah and Barak and, and some of the other judges that God used to deliver the Israelites from the hands of their enemies, and they just struggled over and over and over again with this idea that God can only be worshipped as one God and, not, uh, and, and the God of spirit and truth. So the Bible says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord again. I wrote again in my margin. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern peoples invaded their country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare even a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came, uh, they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or even their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Aren't you glad that God listens when you cry out to him for help? Sometimes when we cry out to God for help, we're really not in a place we should be. But God still wants you to cry out to him for help. And he wants you to do that today if you need to. Verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says to you. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I told you. you remember your parents saying that to you? But I told you again and again and again, right? This is what the prophet's saying to the children of Israel. He said, I told you, um, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in the land I give you, but you have not listened to me. And then the Bible says, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak in Oprah, because uh, that belonged to Joash, uh, the Abazarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord, and that's very significant, we'll talk about that in just a moment, appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like this, huh? <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you talking to me, Lord? You know what I mean? It's from, he was from New York City a little bit. Are you talking to me, right? He says, pardon me, Lord. Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, uh, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian? The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Gideon replied, but how can I how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord said, I will be with you, and you will strike down all of the Midianites, leaving none alone. That's a powerful, powerful thing that happened there. 
This passage kind of reminds me of another passage, similar circumstances in Exodus chapter 2, when God appeared in a burning bush and said to Moses, uh, or he called Moses, and he said, Moses, I've got some things that you're going to do. You're going to deliver my children out of Egypt. They've been oppressed for 400 years. You're going to deliver them out of slavery. And you, God had a destiny for Moses. You are going to take them to the promised land, the land that I promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I have prepared that land. I prepared you. I've heard the cry of my people. You're going to be the one. If you read Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2 is filled with excuses. Well, well, God, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. And they're going to come get me. And I murdered somebody. And I did this. And I did this. And I did this. And, and I'm slow of speech. And I can't handle it. And I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. And Moses just kept saying, but Lord, you need to send somebody else. Well, I need somebody else that will speak for me. And I just can't do it. And, and Moses, if you think, why would, I mean, if you heard God's voice speaking out of burning bush, I, I imagine Moses was pretty scared that day. But if you, if you understand a little bit about Moses' life, Moses, you know, in, in, in the beginning of Exodus, we read about how the Pharaoh went out and had all of his armies kill all babies that were about two years old and under. But Moses' mom found a way to kind of spare her son's life, put him in a little basket, a little, re, a little basket of reeds, sent him floating down the Nile. The Pharaoh's daughter found him. She was adult-ish, right? Uh, we really, th- when we go to have kids, we think we're adults until we're holding that baby, and then we feel like, well, how am I going to take care of this kid by myself, right? So she picks that baby up out, and, and, and Moses' sister is there and says, well, I know somebody that can, that can nurse her for you and gets, this, gets her mom. And, you know, we think, oh, what a wonderful story. Moses was nursed by, listen, Moses wasn't raised by his mom. Moses was nursed by his mom. I don't want to get into a big nursing talk today. You know, I think it's, that's a very personal place that I dare not even tread, where angels fear to tread, right, Gary? But there's ages, right? There's kind of an age-appropriate thing. When we were missionaries in the Philippines, uh, please forgive me. This speaks more into my weirdness than anybody else. We had a lady in her church that, we'll just say, manually fed her children until they were like eight or nine years old. That was weird to me, okay? To me, okay? That's awesome to you. God love you. Praise God. Pass the ammunition. Whatever it is, I'm happy for you. But there is an age where that kind of stops. Would you agree with that? Say amen. Okay, because I'm really sweating right now because it's getting real quiet talking about this, right? So anyway, Moses didn't have his mom his whole life to raise him. She uh, fed him manually for a few years. Let's say it was four years, like a super-duper long time, right? But after that, she was gone, And Moses was an orphan. You don't read in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, any of the books that he wrote, where he talks about his father. His mom was there to nurse him, but he was raised in the house of the Pharaoh. Now, he wasn't, Pharaoh wasn't his dad. Pharaoh's wife wasn't his mom. He had handlers, you know, like like royalty would. So he never had his own mom and dad. He was a Pharaoh. He was a stranger in a foreign land, other people raising him. And, and can I tell you something that's, that, that, that is a psychological fact? Uh, that has an impact on children's lives. He had to wonder. He looked different. Hey, I'm not like these dudes over here. They talk a little different. I'm a little darker in skin than they are. I'm a little this. I'm a, he knew, and he was, told that he, he was told he was different his whole life. So his confidence was probably very low. And if you look at the sin that Moses committed that 
kept him from going to the place that God had destined for him. God told him, he said, God, these people, these Israelites are driving me crazy. They want water. What do you want me to do? And he was frustrated. And God said, speak to the rock. And Moses, out of his frustration, out of his anger, and anger is not an immediate reaction. Anger is usually a reaction that's secondary. Something happens that causes us to get angry. Moses got angry, probably not at God, but at the situation, and he didn't speak to the rock. What did he do? He took his staff, and he hit the rock twice. And God said to Moses, you disobeyed me. You dishonored me. You say, why would he do that? I think Moses lacked confidence. I think Moses lacked the understanding that he really was who God said he was because Probably in his childhood, he didn't have people speaking into him, you are awesome. You are God's son. He found about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob later in life and had an identity crisis trying to figure all this out because he wasn't raised by the people that were supposed to raise him. And Moses sinned. And Moses couldn't take people, his God's chosen people, to Israel, listen church, the thing that God had called him to do. He had to settle for second best. And then we see a very similar story here in Gideon. These people, the Midianites, they were pretty smart people. Their tactic of warfare was pretty genius because instead of sending soldiers in to kill, what they did was they cut off their food supply. The Israelites would go out, they would plant they, they would have fertile soil, they would plant, they would nurture their crop, the crop would get to the place, uh, the, the, the wheat, the fruit, the vegetables, and all those different things where it was mature enough or ripened enough for them to, to, to pick it or, or, or to, to take it out of the ground. I'm not a farmer. Gary, what's it called when you take stuff out of the ground that you plant? Harvest it. When you harvest all that stuff, thank you, Farmer Gary. So... Um, they, they went to harvest those things out of the ground, but before they were able to harvest it, the Midianites who were hiding, they were a nomadic people. Now, it's interesting when you study the Midianites, why were these guys enemies? The Midianites were birthed out of Abraham's seed by a wife who wasn't Sarah. Abraham's the father of, right? He's the father of the, the Israelite people. He's the father of the Jewish nation. But after his wife Sarah died, Sarah, Isaac's mother, he had a couple wives after that. Why he did that, I have no idea because he was a pretty old dude. He was like over 120 years old. But he has another wife, has a child. That child becomes the father of the Midianites who were enemies of the Israelites. These Midianites were nomadic, and what they did was they kind of lurked. And they watched the Israelites plant their crop, and they watched them fertilize it and do all that stuff. And when it, when it got to the place where it was mature, the Midianites just stormed the land of Israel and took all of their crops. And while they were taking their crops, they took their livestock, their donkeys, their animals, everything that they had, leaving them with zero natural resources to do what? To feed their families pretty scary. But it's a great military tactic because when you cut off the lifeline of health to the people, you're not using soldiers to fight where soldiers are killing each other and you're going to lose perhaps a percentage of your army. No, they're just going to take away all their food and starve them out. And that is a tactic that was actually used against Israel for years by different people. The Samaria did it later on. We read about it in 2 Kings. If you read anything about uh, the history of the land of Israel, there was a mountain called Masada, and this mountain called Masada, 
the, uh, the Jewish folks went up in there and they blockaded themselves off and, and the army was around them, I believe, for a couple years trying to starve them out. And then when they went in, they found out they went all killed themselves because they didn't want to give that army the satisfaction of killing them. But this tactic of cutting off all of their supplies was very, very effective. And it made the Israelites broken. And they said, we, we've got to come up with a way. God, can you do We know we've sinned. You know, we look at them and say, man, why did they struggle? But I want to tell you something. I can relate to that because when I find myself confessing my sin to the Lord, it's usually not a new sin that I've discovered. It's a place that I've been to before that's very familiar. Lord, I'm sorry. I did it again. Can you forgive me? Can you restore me? Can you cleanse me? Can you help me? Can you help me put safety around my life so I don't fall? You know, and we go through this this cycle on our own lives. So when we look at the children of Israel in the book of Judges, we've got to be careful on the haterade a little bit because it really is a parallel to our own lives, isn't it? And then the angel of the Lord appears to a guy named Gideon. Both very significant things. You see, the angel of the Lord wasn't just one of God's archangels or, or, or Michael or, or one of a power. The angel of the Lord was a physical manifestation of God's presence himself, probably Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord was very specific. He appeared uh, here to Gideon. He appeared other places in the Old Testament to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were uh, in the furnace. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. And the angel of the Lord comes down to Gideon and says, Gideon, you are a mighty warrior, and you're going to do great things for God. You know what Gideon was doing at the time? I don't know if you've ever seen wine made. Wine is made uh, in, in, uh, when, when you're making a lot of it, so I've been told. Anyway, wine's made in this big vat, and you get inside this big vat. It's like a big baptistry pool almost. It's kind of tall, and you get inside of it, and you just get purple feet from stomping the grapes, right? Well, Gideon goes inside of the wine press to take some of the, uh, the wheat that he had taken from the ground. And the Bible says he was threshing wheat or he was preparing the wheat so it could be used for grain, so it could be used to make bread. But why was he in the wine press? The wine press wasn't made so that you could thresh or prepare wheat. He was hiding from the Midianites. He was scared. He was afraid he was going to be killed. He was afraid for his own life because he took enough resources to maybe feed him and his family. And he's in there kind of ducking down a little bit. And he's doing whatever you got to do to, I don't know what you have to do, Gary, to get fresh wheat, but you're preparing wheat and you're chopping it up and you're doing something to it. Doing that. And then he gets it. And the angel of the Lord says, guess what, Gideon? You are a mighty warrior of God and you're going to kick some butt in Jesus' name. It's kind of what he said. It's a little bit of an addition there by me. And he does that, and Gideon's like, uh, are, are, are you talking to me? I mean, he just, he, I mean, I, mean, I can understand it too, because when God's speaking to Gideon audibly, the angel of the Lord is speaking to Gideon, had to be pretty frightening. You don't see the angel of the Lord every day when you're preparing food in this little hidden area. But Gideon, tells the angel of the Lord, listen to this, all of the wounding words that were spoken to him his whole life. Gideon was told when he was a kid, the Lord's not with us. 
the Lord's abandoned us. He forgot about us. Uh, Gideon was told that God used to do miracles back in the day. Man, he loved our people when they were coming out of Egypt and he fed them manna and he fed them quail and he defeated the Israelite army and they walked across huge bodies of water on dry ground and God did this and God did, listen to this, and God did that, but he doesn't do that with us anymore. Negativity, negativity. The Lord abandoned your people. And then Gideon gives this excuse. He said, are you sure, do you know who you're talking to, Lord? He says, he, he says to himself, he said, uh, how can I save Israel? My clan, my family is the smallest in Manasseh, which is one of the smallest tribes. So I'm from the smallest family in the smallest tribe. And then he says this. It doesn't say I'm the youngest. It doesn't say I'm the youngest. He says, I'm the least. I am the least. Where do you think that he heard that they were from the weakest clan? Where do you think he heard that he was from the weakest family? Where do you think he heard he was the least? Outside people speaking into his life. You wouldn't know that you're the most insignificant sibling in your family unless it was spoken into you year after year after year after year. You're not gonna amount to anything. You don't have any gifts. Your sister's way smarter than you. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Your destiny is just to do this. Your destiny is just, and I know evangelical Christians get a little freaked out when you hear the word destiny. Oh, are we going, you know, are we going like super duper crazy, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with the gifts and all that stuff? Listen, God does have a destiny for your life that is above anything that you could ask or believe in, the Lord tells us in Ephesians chapter 20, but Ephesians 3.20. But here's what happens. Sometimes we start believing all the negative crud that people speak into our lives. You can't do that. You don't have those gifts. You don't have those abilities. You're the smallest. Can you imagine a sibling being told? And he had many brothers. He had the Bible. Man, you read a terrible tragedy that happened to Gideon's family later on with all of his siblings. They went out and killed all of them. But man, if you had a bunch of siblings and you were the one sibling that your parents said, yeah, you see all your nine or 10 brothers and sisters, you're the least out of all of them. What do you think that did to Gideon's confidence? What do you think that did to Gideon? And the angel of the Lord says to him, you are a mighty warrior. Because this negative influence became part of his core belief system. And I want to tell you something, church. You know this is true because it's happened to many of your lives as it's happened to me too. Sometimes the one who gets to you first can have the greatest impact. That's what's so, so significant, moms and dads, when it comes to your children, to pour into them. Listen, not just live out a good example. And yeah, I know you've got to correct your kids, and that's a hard thing to do. But you've got to speak into their lives, love and positivity, because their positive belief system is going to come from you. If you don't speak positive into their lives, you know what they're going to do? Believe the negativity that you speak over them. And I know that there's people that carry that wound from personal conversations, from, from statistical value that I know I could speak into. But I'm reminded of this movie, and I, I probably have used this before, but it was just such a powerful scene. 
There was this really good movie called The Help. Anybody see the movie called The Help? If you've seen the movie The Help, you don't eat chocolate pie anymore. I'll just say that, okay? You don't eat chocolate pie anymore. There was a lady, and it was a terrible movie about racism, the, the, the scar of racism in our country. But there was this really awesome lady who was kind of a maid in this house. And this little girl of her mom and dad was, was just, she was just, she was chubby. She was thick. And her mom and dad said that to her all the time. Don't eat that, you're fat. Don't eat that, you're fat. Don't eat that, you're fat. You're going to be ugly. You're going to be ugly. You're going to be ugly. And this sweet, sweet African-American lady would just pick her up and hold her. And I remember watching this, just crying, watching this. Had such an impact on my life. And she'd say, you was kind. You was smart. You was important. She was trying to combat the negativity of her parents speaking positive, speaking truth, speaking love into her life. Is it fair to say that words can leave a pretty big wound in our lives, church? I think all of us understand where I'm going to with this. But the angel of the Lord, God's son, Jesus Christ, appearing in the Old Testament, speaks these words over Gideon. He said, Gideon, you are a mighty warrior. I bet you he got Gideon's attention by that. First of all, Gideon thought he was by himself. He's ducking down in the wine press with the wheat. You are a mighty warrior. He may have thought it was the Midianites coming after him, kind of making fun of him. He was probably used to getting made fun of. He was the, I don't know if he was the shortest in the family, but he was known by reputation as the least in his family. Let me say this to you, you guys over here. That have, how many of you have siblings? Raise your hand up in here. Teenage, you have siblings, okay? Be very careful. Be very, very careful not to bust on your siblings that are shorter than you because you know what happens? We're soaring at. Where's your brother? Is he in the sound booth? Soaring, your younger brothers get taller than you someday. I promise you. I, I, was, I towered over my brother Joe my whole life. I was like five or six inches taller than him. Always had him by 60 or 70 pounds. Man, I had the gun show working, thunder and lightning, and there was a storm brewing when I was around, you know? At least that's what I try to tell myself. But you know what happened when my brother got older? When he was a senior in high school, he was like an inch shorter than me. I'm like, oh, man, at least he's not taller than me now. And then from the time he was 18, he was 24. He grew like eight inches, and he is now six foot nine. Man, I'm glad I didn't beat him up too bad when we were younger. I really am glad about that. Younger, younger brothers can get bigger than you someday. You tell your brother or sister they're the least, you better watch out because they're going to remember that someday and they're going to come back and get you, aren't they? Yeah, they are. He was told he was the least. And then God says, you are a mighty warrior. God says this to him too. Jesus says, and I'm with you right now. He was alone. He was in the wine press. He was trying to get food for his family. He was in a terrible crisis, and he thought he was alone. And the promise that Jesus made to us in Matthew chapter 28, before he ascended up into heaven, and lo, I am with you, somebody say it, always, even unto the end of the age. Jesus said, I am with you right now, and then Gideon gives another excuse. Yeah, but I'm the least. I'm the shortest. I'm this. Smallest tribe. Smallest family. Why are you calling me to do this, Lord? I don't have the strength to do this. You know what God says to him? God didn't say, I'm going to give. He didn't say, I'm going to give you the strength. And he, you know what he said? Go in the strength that you have right now. You're strong enough to do what I've called you to do. 
if I go with you. Somebody say amen to that. God wants to do something in and through you. And he's already equipped you. And some of you may have had that negativity spoken into you. You can't. You won't. You're not able. You're not this. And God says, I've already given you all that you need to do what I've called you to do. Now you've got to submit to me and follow me and watch what I can do through your life. Go with strength that you already have. And then he says to Gideon, hey, least of the smallest of the smallest, guess what you're going to do? You're going to be used by me to rescue my people. Do you think the angel of the Lord was rocking Gideon's world that day? He's like, I can't, what, what, what is he? And he's going to turn to talk to somebody, right? Maybe one of his, one of his older brothers had told him he was, and he kept bumping into the wine thing because he's stuck in this big vat with nobody but God and a bunch of wheat. And he says, you're going to rescue my people and defeat the enemy. And you know what? When you do that, I'm going to still be with you. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to win. You're going to win. I've got this thing figured out already. This big army of the Midianites, they're doing some awful stuff. But I'm going to use you to do something. And listen, I love this promise out of the word of God. God wanted to do something so big through Gideon so that God would receive the glory, so that God would be lifted up, so that Gideon would, would just be known as somebody who said, you ready, church? Yes to God. We base the stuff that we do on our own personal, well, I'm not that good. And we're told that. And we kind of get sucked into this negative vortex of believing all the crap, pardon my French, listen, that the deceiver is speaking into your life. And this attack started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the snake, right, the serpent's cruising around uh, Eve and says, Eve, why can't you eat the fruit that's in the tree in the middle of the garden? Right? That was a cool snake sound, wasn't it? My mic's soaking wet now. Anyway. And Eve gave the proper response, kind of gave an exaggerated response, because the proper response would be, the day that we eat it, we're going to die. But Eve kind of gave an exaggerated response and said, whoa, we can't eat that. We can't even touch it. And maybe, maybe, that, was, maybe that was the uh, inspiration for MC Hammer's song, Don't Touch This. Da-na-na-na, no, can't touch this. But she said, she was told by her husband, we can't even, you stay so far away from that. I don't think she was lying. That was what she was told by her husband. Don't even touch it unless you die. And what did the serpent say to Eve that day? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. You're going to be just as strong as him. You're going to be able to create like he did. You're going to be his equal. You're going to be able to do this. You're going to be able to do that. And what was Satan doing? Lying. Because he walks around this earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you know what he does to me? He speaks into my ear sometimes. You can't do that. You're a failure. You can't do that. This church isn't going to be successful. You're nothing. You're not a good dad. You're not a good husband. You're not a good grandfather. Who do you think you are? You're weak. You're weak. You're weak. You're, and I'm going to tell you something. Like you, Satan says that stuff to me all the time. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You get reminded of how weak you are. And God doesn't want us to do that. 
Gideon, listen to this, Gideon started the process of becoming the man that God intended and called him to be that day. And God can use adversity uh, to introduce you to the you that he wants you to become. He was kind of at the end of the ropes. He's just, I mean, he's like literally a beggar going out into the fields that the Midianites already just kind of totally fleeced and, and, and takes that wheat and he's hiding, trying to cut it up for his family. And, and he's going through this, how am I going to eat tomorrow? How, how am I going to take care of my family? I wonder what's going on with this. I wonder what's going on. You are a mighty warrior. And he's going through an adversity. In church, maybe the adversity you're going through right now is so that you will call on the name of the Lord, so that you will cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, so that you will learn to trust you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the one that's in the world is a liar. He wants to kill and destroy and trick us and deceive us and lie to us because he knows as much as God knows our potential that God has put inside of us. I wonder how many of you here today have something inside of you that the Lord is trying to show you that you are. Maybe God wants to introduce you to the you that he wants you to become. I can't do that. I'm limited. I can't. I can't. I can't. And we start believing that stuff. And we've got to break that. And we've got to start believing the words of God, the Holy Scriptures, where God says this, things that he wants you to know about him if you know him as Savior. If you know him as Savior, then you are a chosen, adopted child of God. If you know him as Savior, you are loved beyond human comprehension. If you know him as Savior, you have value, purpose, gifts, and a holy anointed calling on your life. If you know him as Savior, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You have access to the Father through your prayers. You don't need permission to talk to God. You could talk to him right now, right where you're sitting this morning. You are not the sum total of your past mistakes like Satan wants you to believe. You don't wear the clothes of a beggar. You wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God is secured. It's unchanging. You were created to do something special from the Lord. And I already know that Satan's fighting back with these words, causing you to doubt these words from God. Because God is for you, nobody can be against you. No weapon formed against you can prosper. You have been bought, paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are safe in the hands of God. You have been sealed, the book of Ephesians tells us, until the day of redemption. You are safe and secure in Jesus Christ. Your very name, if you know him as Savior, is written in God's hand in a book called the Book of Life. You're a hero. You. You are a mighty warrior, ma'am. You are a mighty warrior, sir. I was talking to my dear friend, Pastor Frank, and we were out in the hallway a little bit just talking about we're both in the class of 2019, aren't we, Brother Frank? Class of 2019, right? We were talking out there. And Frank said, who would have thought this little old boy from Texas could be used to do the things that God told him to do? 
taken the Bible up in the mountains and Jesus films and he's going to be 85 years old in August and he's already planning his next trip to Mexico to minister with Pastor Ricardo because he knows that God has called him to take the gospel of Jesus Christ while he still has breath in his lungs. Warrior. You are a warrior. Tell somebody you're sitting next to you, you're a warrior. Tell them that. You're a warrior. You are a warrior. You're a warrior, young man. Students, you guys are warriors. Satan hates your potential and hates your life. Satan hated that we were going to do tamales today for camp. You say, okay, that's getting too personal. You know why Satan hated the tamale thing that you guys were supposed to do? And by the way, if you wanted to buy tamales, they all spoiled yesterday because of a refrigeration, whatever, whatever, whatever issue. We're figuring it out. We're going to help Gary. Gary's like super down about it. After church, we're about 30 of you go up and hug him and tell him he's a mighty warrior. Would you do that with us this morning? Because this guy's a stud for Jesus right here. Listen, he is. But listen, it wasn't about the tamales. Now, I don't particularly like tamales. Don't, I'm not a hater. I just, I don't care for them very, very much. Can't have the carbs, Dr. Hooten. Can't have the carbs. If you know what those tamales represent, kids going to camp. He's trying to raise money for camp and out of his own pocket, lost $400 in this. And I know what he gets paid. That's not $400 extra that's lying around the house, is it? He's a warrior. But Satan wants to fight that because he knows in this guy and in this guy and in this beautiful girl and in this wrestling gladiator, and these two beauties, and this guy right here who tells me he's Gary's personal assistant, and this sweet little girl sitting next to him, and this young man right here, and this young man, and that guy, and that guy, and that girl, and that girl, and that guy, and that girl, and that girl, and that sweet lady. God has a destiny. God has a calling. God has an anointing. God has a plan, and Satan wants to do everything he can to bust it up. Just like he does for you and for me. You're a warrior. God is with you. God has given you the strength to do what he's called you to do. I'm not enough. Guess what? You're right. You weren't supposed to be enough to defeat the whole army. That's where you depend on me, and I'm going to do great things through you, God tells us. God wants you to rescue people who need Jesus Christ. Well, I'm slow of speech. I don't know how to invite people to church. I don't have that. Just let them see kindness and love and, and, and good works so that your light may shine before all men. And you know what? You're going to cause them to ask questions. What, Matt, why is Matt Lee so different than other people? Amber says, I'll tell you. I can tell you right now why Matt Lee. Because the love of God is in his life. And there's a kindness in him that's different than other people that draws attention to what? To the one that changed him, Jesus Christ. God's always going to be with you. And you're going to win the victory. And God has a victory for you to win in him. If you believe it, don't be afraid. Gideon was afraid. And I'm saying that to you as a guy that's scared a lot. (laughs) But I know our God's bigger and our God's greater. And as much as I wanted to speak this truth into your life this morning... Let's pray.
Father, thank you. I love to read the story of Samson, this big muscle dude that just went out and kicked Heine for you. And how he killed all the Philistines. And his sin was just obvious why he messed up. But then earlier in Judges, you call the littlest the least from the smallest of the small to do the greatest of the great. And I know Satan spoke into him and said, you can't, you can't, you won't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Even caused him to doubt, even as we read a little bit further, as he kind of struggled with that calling. And I think there are men and women in this room that kind of go through the same thing. I, I know I do. Lord, when things get scary, things get scary. And things don't make sense. And we're looking for answers, right, Lord, from, from our own gifts and from our own talents and from our own abilities. And, and we know that we're not strong enough. But Satan reminds us that, that we're insignificant, reminds us of our past, reminds us of our sin, reminds us of our mistakes. He'll, he'll, he'll remind us of other people that are better than us, that have made mistakes, that can't do it and speak into us. And he'll do so much. He's such a strong tactician, even stronger than the Midianites were. But he does. He lurks back until it's a time of harvest. And he, and he kind of kicks us like right when we're at that point, Lord, where we could be totally trusting on you. And poof, messes us up. But Lord, help us to see that you've called us to be mighty warriors. Help us to believe, Lord, that you've called us to do a great thing for you. Help us to believe this morning that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Help us to put our faith and trust, not just our forever. We love that forever stuff. Streets of gold, glorified body, being with people that have gone before us. We love that kind of talk, Lord, about forever and ever and ever. But you want to be part of my life today. You want to win a victory in my life today. You want to reach somebody for Christ through my life today, through my testimony. And as much as I feel insignificant, don't feel the strength and the power to be able to do so, you've given me all that I need to accomplish your work as long as I'm totally depending on you. The wound of words. Look inside of your heart. Be honest with God this morning. How many of you carry this morning a wound from either negative words of Satan, parents, teachers, people, spouses, you've heard yucky stuff and you kind of believe it sometimes about yourself and you carry some wounds this morning. How many of you would just be real honest with God this morning, raise your hand up and say, Ed, I know exactly. That is me to the T. I wonder if you would pray and say, Father, forgive me for doubting. Reveal yourself. I submit. I'll follow I'll listen. Maybe there's a sin you need to confess this morning. Don't go home and do it. Do it right now. Father, forgive me for when I... Tell him. Allow him to do something great for you. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody's looking around. Let me speak this into your life before I close in prayer. You are a mighty warrior. It's not me. This is God's word. God is with you right now. God has given you the strength that you need to do his work today. God wants you to rescue people who need Jesus Christ. 
And when it gets hard, and when it doesn't make sense, and when nobody else is listening, and when you feel all alone, God will never, ever leave you or forsake you. You will win the victory. It's His. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You claim that victory this morning and say that to the Lord. Father, I claim that victory today in Jesus' name. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the men and women in our church this morning, our awesome student body. Lord, help them see you, how great you are, the greatness of the potential that you've called them to, and not to lift ourselves up, Lord. We want to lift you up so you can draw men to yourselves. But Lord, we're reminded of our, of our failures. We're reminded of our inadequacies. Our health fails. Our, our, our character gets muffled up sometimes. We sin, and Satan comes in and just pounces and just wants to beat us. And you want us to go to you for forgiveness, for healing, for cleansing, so we can go out and be that mighty warrior that you've called us to be. Father, for anybody in this room that's carrying a wound from words, I ask you in the name of Jesus Christ, because of his power and his blood and his healing, to heal them of that wound. Help them to see that as a beautiful scar for your honor and your glory. We pray this today in Jesus' name. And everybody say it with me.